Hi. Welcome, everyone, to our latest Geopolitics of Commodities podcast. I'm your host, Scott Smithson, and today our guest is Mr. Arjun Murthy. Arjun, welcome. Thank you, Scott. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, we're, we're deeply, uh, we're, we're really, really excited to have you uh, on this podcast series. Looking forward to a great conversation. Before we get started, I just want to tell our audiences a little bit about you, Arjun, and then uh, ask you to tell a little bit about, uh, about some of the things that you're doing, and then have this great, great conversation of energy and geopolitics and where we're going, particularly as we go into 2024. So, um, uh, so we're really, really delighted to have Arjun with us. Uh, Arjun is a partner at Veriton a research investing and strategy firm. Uh, he spent over 30 years as an equity analyst on Wall Street, most notably as a partner at Goldman Sachs. Prior to joining Veriton last year, he spent a decade as a board member and a senior advisor at firms like ConocoPhillips, Warburg Pincus, and Columbia Center of Global Energy Policy, uh, Global Energy Policy, which are all roles he remains in. Arjun, thank you so very much for being with us today. And uh, why don't we just go ahead and get right started? Sure. Thank you, Scott. It's, again, a pleasure to be here, and thank you for the kind introduction. No, absolutely. So, so Arjun, I think one of, the, one of the ways that I was first introduced uh, to your work, and I think as, as we look at kind of the landscape by which analysis and thinking about energy and finance and macroeconomics is really kind of diffusing right now, is with a lot of alternative platforms. And uh, we at Lycan were really, really excited to see a lot of the research that you've done and that you've published on SuperSpiked. And I thought maybe it would be good for our listeners just to know a little bit about SuperSpiked, um, you know, its origin, the type of work that you like to feature, and kind of what really motivated you to do that. Sure. And it's, I think it is a great place to start. So, you know, you mentioned I've spent 30 years and I still identify as sort of an energy equity research analyst. So, uh, you know, covering uh, it would have been historically the traditional sector, the major oils, independent producers, refiners and so forth. And throughout my career, I've done various stints with so-called, I'm going to call it, quote unquote, clean energy. I don't think anything's uh, clean or dirty or green or brown, but we can we can get to that maybe later in the conversation. But I've done a few stints through that as well. And of course, today, it's much more balanced with all the different forms of energy we're using. But, I, you know, first 20 years, plus or minus, mostly at Goldman, uh, I became a partner. I was running the research department. And I got to the point where my wife could tell I was getting a little burnt out on the job itself. I was very fortunate to be in a position to retire. I cut basically a decade with my kids from middle through high school and doing this board work, the Conoco Board, Warburg Pincus, and Columbia Center on Global Energy Policy. And I should say I'm here on my own behalf, on behalf of Veriton, uh, which is my current role. Um, but there was something about, I would say, a little bit before COVID through COVID, where this mindset that we're going to have an energy transition, but that it has to be fast, meaning over 20, 30 years, 2050 net zero, the Paris aligned targets, the rise of ESG is not just something that in the background of Wall Street, we all spend some time thinking about, but it was a real prominent driver. And when I saw the discussions on energy broadly and this notion of energy transition, I found myself sort of instinctively really pushing back uh, in what I would call kind of the U.S. left to center version of these things. But I also didn't find any comfort in what I'd say the right of center equivalents to, to the counter arguments were. And I thought both sides... Uh, at least in a political context, did not have any of this right, or at least not as I thought about energy. Uh, and we can get into a lot of this, but it motivated me uh, at a time where we see a lot of extremism in the United States. I was born and raised here. My parents are from India, but where we've seen a lot of extremism ride up, 
I think it's up to those of us who might have some knowledge about a sector or subject matter who don't find themselves on the extreme, not to necessarily try and convince people that we're right and those extremists on the left or the ones on the right, they're all wrong. I'm not, I don't say that at all. I'd say, here is a perspective that I think is grounded in a 30 year career of looking at the energy sector. What makes sense? What scales up? What doesn't scale up? Why we use energy? How various technologies rise in prominence or fall in prominence? And so it motivated me to write on Substack. I started on Twitter. Twitter has its pros and cons. Uh, I morphed to Substack. It's arjunmurdy.substack.com. It is for free. And even as part of the Veriden platform, we feel, I feel, a need to help at least provide some energy literacy. And again, we never say that we're right. What we're saying is we have a history and we have a perspective on this sector. And that was the motivation to create a new super spike to provide, I think, a different perspective on how one should think about energy, broadly speaking. No, that's great. Uh, I, and, I, and I love the idea, as you said, of, of energy literacy. Um, you know, with, with the depth and breadth of experience that, that you have in, in your analysis, I, I wondered if I could just ask you maybe to just to set the context and the foundation for our discussion. How do you, as someone from your position, how do you kind of characterize the global energy environment right now in the, in, in the, in the commodities landscape even more broadly? You know, how, how do you kind of conceptualize this and, and, and what are the parameters, the dimensions that you think are most essential for our listeners as they kind of think about what all this means going forward? Well, the, the tagline to Super Spiked is, we are in the midst of a messy energy transition era. Uh, and so a couple of different thoughts to unpack there. I think when people use the term energy transition, there's a perception that we're transitioning out of something, presumably fossil fuels, into something else, which simplistically would be renewables and electric vehicles and these kind of things. And we're pursuing policies that, frankly, um, I'm not sure are going to lead to any form of transition that are trying to disincentivize oil and gas supply. But mind you, only in the United States, Canada and Western Europe, which is where a lot of environmental activists exist, um, and not doing much to address the demand side of the equation, all at a time where there are frankly only about 1 billion of us, I call it the lucky 1 billion, people that live in the US, Europe, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada that use a disproportionate amount of energy, and certainly on a per capita basis. And at the barest of minimums, we have 1.4 billion people in China, 1.4 in India, and 1.3 in the rest of Southeast Asia, ex-Japan, China, and India, that are clearly moving up that economic S-curve. And that means they're moving up the energy S-curve, which also means, therefore, they're going to be using whatever forms of energy they can get their hands on that is abundant, that is affordable, that is geopolitically secure. And those are the primary characteristics. And hopefully, it also will be environmentally friendly on any number of metrics, clean air, clean water, low sulfur, all these kind of things, but also lower carbon long term. But it has to be there first and it has to be affordable. So when I look at the energy environment we're in right now, I think this idea that politicians and extremists push that we can quickly transition. Um, one thing that I push back on. On the other hand, the idea that drill, baby, drill is the only answer to our problems, I'd also push back on. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a really complex, and I think we'll get into it, a geopolitical argument, a geopolitically driven argument for why new energies, uh, which is my preferred term for what everyone else calls clean energy, all the new stuff will be desired in places like China and India. Uh, and and I, I think it's a subject worth, worth getting into. Um, we are in the midst of what I think is going to be a very high and volatile period 
for things like oil prices, gas prices, and a lot of the traditional products that we all still depend on, because we're in this environment where people perceive we're going to transition, and that the only way to transition is to, quote, keep it in the ground, which I think is only going to keep American, Canadian, and European oil and gas in the ground if anyone's successful at that. And it leads to a, a really challenging environment where you run the risk of higher inflation, of inadequate supply of the resources that the world needs, without, frankly, doing anywhere near what the proponents will say will be done on things like addressing our carbon emissions. What is the point of having essentially no change to the track in carbon emissions and just ending up with a period of high and volatile oil prices? And that's why I use the term messy energy transition to describe where we are. Uh, and I, I, and I, it is the point of super spike. It is the point of working at Veriton. How do you get to a more sensible energy evolution such that those that are less fortunate get to move up the economic curve, but we do do it in a more responsibly, uh, environmentally friendly manner. Yeah, no, no, that, no, thank you. That, that's, that was really, really interesting to hear, you know, and, and it's interesting as well. You know, we're just coming out of the last, uh, the, the last COP meeting in Abu Dhabi, COP 28. And it's always interesting. And I welcome your perspectives on this of what people can reasonably, you know, expect that will happen at these international summits. It's not lost that the last two have been, uh, that have been hosted by oil producing nations. I believe the next one is going to be uh, hosted in Baku, Azerbaijan next yeah. year, right? And I think it also gets to this point that, that you said, which is any type of this this type of energy transition itself is going to have to involve different types of form of energy. So if energy is the lifeblood of the global economic picture, and if you have multiple countries, like you said, like India, like China, that are needing to have some type of energy source to drive not only what they do externally, but for domestic demand and therefore domestic stability, you're going to find those resources, right? Yeah. Um, a, a fascinating kind of anecdote, and I'm sure we'll get to Ukraine. Uh, you know, in a Biden, there was a Biden administration official who kind of cornered someone from the Indian government about a year into the conflict saying, hey, are you going to get online with these sanctions and different things as it related to Russian oil? Which side are you taking? And the minister for India said, I've chosen the side, I've chosen India, right? And so I think it's going to be fascinating to see how not just corporations, but how governments kind of navigate this very, very complex space of geopolitics and geoeconomics. All will that drive in the need for energy and the incentive to look for different sources is there. Well, Scott, you, th there's a number of really interesting points in um, your question and comment just now. And I think if you start with these conference of parties, the COP meetings, I think if the idea is to raise awareness um, and to raise general pressure that whatever amount of economic growth we have has to be balanced with trying to move towards lower carbon forms of energy and so forth, I mean, that part of it, um, I, I don't think there's anything to disagree with. I think the challenge with these COP conferences historically, it's always been a there's a good and there's an evil. And the good side is, say, renewables. The evil side is oil and gas. And I think framing energy sources as good versus evil, or the alternate terms are clean versus dirty, green versus brown. There is no such thing. All energy sources have positive attributes and they have negative attributes. Um, the solar panels don't just magically bubble out of the sun. Uh, it requires a whole bunch of mining, a whole bunch of minerals. Uh, perhaps it requires forced labor in some countries. I'm not sure what is uh, ESG friendly about forced labor anywhere in the world as an example. And so the, the point would simply be that all forms of oil and gas 
Some is cleaner, some is dirtier, and all forms of solar, wind, etc. Never mind intermittency, never mind where you're placing these things. Are you negatively impacting biodiversity, uh, whether it's solar, whether it's wind, and so forth? And the same challenges exist with oil and gas. I think that basic good versus evil framing when it comes to energy sources. In America, the example would be, if you're a Republican, you're generally associated with pro-oil and gas. And if you're a Democrat, you're generally associated with pro-renewables and electric vehicles. And I find that insane. No energy source should be partisan in nature. It's ridiculous. Every person on Earth, for the most part, could care less what their source of energy is. No one says, man, I'm really glad here in New Jersey. I'm down to 12% coal and I'm 42%. No one knows these numbers. No one cares. What you care is that when you plug in your cell phone, does it charge? And A, does it come on in the first place? Or when you go to drive your car, does it move you forward? You really don't care about the drivetrain. I personally drive a Tesla. I find the tech-oriented one-pedal driving charge at home to be preferable for me. But nor do I think it's so revolutionary versus ICE vehicles that everyone's just going to want to have a Tesla in the same way they wanted to have a cell phone instead of a landline. So when you have these global conferences which are driven by environmentalists. I think there's a very important role for the environmentalists to play. Here in America, we should be grateful that we no longer dump chemicals into rivers, as existed in the 70s when I was still alive and the Great Lakes were on fire. That is, lots of good things come from the environmental movement, but you can't plan your economy on it, and you can't plan your geopolitics on it. Uh, they need to be part of the conversation, but not the conversation, which I think often happens in these cops. So we need the developing world to be there. They are going to be the future users of energy. And the most important thing I think you said is India is going to choose to go down the route that is best for them, as makes sense for every country. And it's one of the things that I think is most interesting about this current time, that if you're China, you're going to do what is in China's interest. Same thing with India. Same thing with most of Southeast Asian countries. And I think, unfortunately, the continent of Africa, 54 countries, they may not all be fully there and having the ability to avoid European and American influence and that, that, that we can come to. But um, the, all these conversations need to evolve to how do you provide energy for people? How can it be affordable? How can it be geopolitically secure? And over time, how do you make it cleaner and lower carbon? No, no, that, that was great. And, and if I can, I kind of latched on to your, uh, your comment there at the end, too, about how do you make it secure? It gets to this issue of reliability. Um, you know, I, I think one of the fascinating things that we've seen just in the last two years is a final acknowledgement of just how vulnerable different infrastructure is when it comes to the shipment, the movement, uh, the storage of different commodities. And we, and and I haven't even said anything about the Red Sea yet or the Houthis. Um, and and so I, I was just kind of uh, wanted to ask you on that. What do you think are some of the kind of the underappreciated stories of, let's say, for example, Europe and their kind of determination to wean themselves off cheap, accessible uh, Russian energy stores, looking for alternative sources, not necessarily alternative types of energy, but alternative sources of energy? It seems as if it's been a mild winter in Europe right now, but... But is there a little bit of fool's gold in this type of analysis that say that everything is okay in Europe in the short term when it comes to their energy needs? I mean, Europe seems to me to be the example of what no one should aspire to ever do from an energy policy standpoint. And so one can say weaning themselves off Russian gas uh, was something that perhaps they were warned about in previous years and chose to ignore, and they've now learned that lesson. 
the idea that Europe is going to go to some dominant green hydrogen mix by 2030 is pure insanity. And you can see the industrial base of Europe and especially Germany freaking out about it. The fact that individual German companies are now procuring LNG. I mean, that to me is unheard of uh, on sort of a standalone basis. I think it was BAC, BASF signed up for some uh, LNG cargoes. It was either from America or for Qatar. But regardless, you're starting to see really uh, the examples that the I think industry is starting to get it. Shutting down your nukes to in turn run more coal. I mean, there's almost no aspect of what Europe is doing that makes any sense. Now, one can say as a continent, they are generally um, short oil and natural gas. Now, they prohibit a whole bunch of drilling, so it's possible they don't have to be as short as they are. But there is a logic to diversifying. Um, but they did you're going to shut down your nukes before you know what's going to come next and that you have some unbridled uh, optimism on green hydrogen. I mean, only politicians could think that this makes sense and that you'd want to plan your economy on it. And it speaks to that really uh, dangerous mix of sort of ideology, um, listening only to the environmental community um, and not living in the kind of reality that would say, well, what, what is the likelihood of this scaling up at the kind of scale you're going to need to run your economy? So I, I can't think of a region that I would never want to emulate and that no one should emulate than, than Europe. I, I, I think the counterexample is China, where when you look at China, they've got record amounts of oil demand, record amounts of uh, natural gas demand, record amounts of renewables deployment, record amounts of electric vehicle sales, and record amounts of coal production. It is the obvious answer that you're going to do all of the above. But, right. but take, right, take the, I, I want to counter it with Europe. China is building out an electric vehicle infrastructure that people say, well, aren't they doing right by the climate? No. This, to me, this is about avoiding future oil imports. They've gone from zero oil imports to 12 million barrels a day, which is a huge number, as they've kind of industrialized over the last 20 years. From zero to 12 million barrels a day is the largest oil importing region in the world. They are not blessed with a lot of oil. So if you're China and you have still moving up that energy and economic S-curve, you're not going to want to get to where you're importing 20 or 30 million barrels a day of oil. Those numbers are preposterous. But that is what continued economic growth and continued wealth gains in the country would imply if they're able to achieve it. So you're going to motivate electric vehicles as much as you can. And you might build up a domestic industry that also serves as an opportunity for exports. You would rather have a coal-fired EV in China than an OPEC or shale oil-fired internal combustion engine, as an example. And to me, it's a it's not that China's doing everything right. But compared to Europe, they're doing a heck of a lot more things right, which I think they... I don't know if they deserve credit for it. I'll say it factually that th that's how I would observe it. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point in that compare and contrast, because, you know, from a geopolitical perspective, a lot of those choices from China building kind of a sanctions proof economy, a dual circulation model, if you will, and thinking about limitations, if there was ever a distant blockade coming from the Middle East, for example, how do you kind of diversify that? So there's a lot of risk hedging, if you will in that type of model. Whereas I think many parts of the world and maybe even parts of the United States, we got used to certain things operating a certain way in a predictable fashion. And after Trump trying to trade war, COVID, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, now this 2008 financial crisis, you name it, that, you know, is this, is this the new normal? And, and, you know, and, and you've written a lot about long-term cycles of things uh, that, that's been really, really interesting as well. 
can just for our kind of our kind of readers with with all the different things that we've kind of just covered in the last in the first part of this podcast, what are the underappreciated or underacknowledged aspects of the of the energy transition of uh, geopolitical disruption that you think people are not paying enough attention to? And I just ask partly also because there are multiple platforms like this one, right? Yeah. Everyone's out there trying to talk about what's happening in the world. How is it influencing different sectors, but coming up from, from different perspectives and, and, and really just kind of value kind of your thoughts onto what aspect of these wars, energy, geopolitical competition that, that is just not really being acknowledged, but that people really need to be well attuned to. Well, I, I think we can stick with this sort of Europe and China framing with a little bit of Russia mixed in. So on the one hand, being dependent on Russian gas. And, and first of all, disincentivizing any shale gas exploration or other resource development in your own region first, and then deciding, well, we don't want to, quote, pollute, you know, our country, so let's go import cheap Russian gas. I mean, it's insane, right? Uh, see, but the challenge with pipeline gas is it's not easily replaceable. So the difference between oil and gas is, I think, a lot of people would appreciate is you, if you're not sticking it in an LNG tanker, if it comes via pipeline, th there's not a lot of flexibility in those kind of systems. Whereas with oil, when Europe says we're not going to buy Russian oil because they inappropriately uh, attacked this great country of Ukraine, um, you know, w like what's the relevance of sanctioning Russian oil if it's just going to be sold to India and China? And in fact, U.S. sanctions were set up to to allow Russian oil to continue to flow. It was never about shutting in oil. It was about to perhaps have a price cap and try and limit how much revenues uh, the Putin government could get. I, I understand that was part of the purpose. Uh, hard historians or someone else can decide how effective the price cap was or was not. But we know the oil simply flowed to India to their benefit and to their credit and to the detriment of Europeans. So how, how if you're European, does it make sense to first disincentivize any domestic resource and to think it's okay to explore in other countries, but not our own. Uh, and then to say with oil, which is a global commodity, which you can easily transport around the world, that on some sort of virtue signaling, no, we can't buy evil Russian oil. What difference did that make? I, I do, I, it's perplexing, right? Um, you, you know, and so when you, so I think, I think this idea of what is a domestic resource? So like when people say, I don't want some project in Alaska or I don't want an oil sands field. What they're saying is, I do want Iranian oil, and I do want Saudi oil, and I do want Russian oil. Now, they may not be saying they're saying that, but that's de facto what is going to happen, because this is a global commodity. And I think, I don't understand why there's not pushback on this. I don't know why, if you're not a die, if you're a diehard environmentalist, and you say, I don't want the oil sands, I don't want Alaska, what, why do you not think it's going to come from Saudi and Russia? And even if an environmentalist says, oh, yeah, I just want to protest whatever I can protest, how, as a leader of this country, do you decide that this is okay? We're going to keep it in the ground in our own country and keep our own companies under pressure. Canadian government does, does this, and the Biden administration has certainly tried to do it, I think unsuccessfully, but, but, but they faced pressure to do it is probably what I should say. Um, how does that make sense for a country? W which is what I appreciate about what India is doing, what China is trying to do, which is we're going to take care of our country first. We're going to ensure our citizens have large, affordable, available resource, and we're going to get it from wherever we can because it exists out there. Russian oil exists out there. You can dislike Russia all you want, but we know it is out there. And I think this idea of what is domestic, what is global, and what is not, these are all the kind of things that I think are often underappreciated. 
No, exactly. And I, I smiled too when you were talking about uh, this idea of limiting U.S. production. You could correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe 2023 was the largest oil production year in the history of the United States during a Biden administration. Produce more oil, you know, you know, at a time when you think we would be doing less, that actually continued. This the same with our LNG exports. I think the U.S. is the number one exporter of LNG globally right now. Um, I'm not sure if that's correct or not. I, I, I wanted to ask you too, Arjun, on this point. Well, let, let's spend a second on this because I, I think it does prove the point that oftentimes too much credit or blame goes to administrations. And, and listen, I'm an equity analyst. The four worst years for the oil and gas sector were under the Trump years. Now, I don't blame Trump for that, but it factually happened. And frankly, these three years under Biden have been three of the best stock price and profitability years for the sector. So it's, it's not as easy to say Republicans good, Democrats bad, or even vice versa. But um, most of our oil is in Texas. And fortunately, Texas is a state that is on the water, um, and so you can export this stuff. And it has the kind of business climate that has allowed development to continue. But what about gas from Appalachia? I mean, there's been plenty of infrastructure blockage from this administration and prior administrations towards pipelines out of Appalachia. Why is Massachusetts importing LNG from Russia and some other countries? It's insane when they are right next to Pennsylvania and the Marcellus gas, and it just requires pipeline development. So there's been plenty of infrastructure obstructionism when they've been able to do it. Um, Alaska could be a major opportunity for our country in terms of development and a real strategic advantage at a time the climate is warming and the Arctic is starting to open up. And Russia is doing what they can to take advantage of this. I'll bet, Scott, you are actually better versed than I am to talk about that specific subject. But I will just say Alaska should be a huge competitive advantage from a resource standpoint. And just recently as yesterday, the Biden administration is facing pressure to take a look at all these LNG permits. Now, that could just be uh, public pressure from environmentalists. It may not lead to anything. But nor do they say, no, environmentalists, you're wrong. LNG is good for our allies. It's good for American business. And by the way, it's good for the developing world. It is better than coal. And whether it's better or worse than anything, the world needs the energy, and it darn well should be American energy, and I will say also Canadian, uh, as opposed to resources from other, other, other regions. Yeah, no, exactly. No, and your point about Russia, you know, fascinating one. You know, one of the, after this, after the invasion started, one of the last kind of major forums where Russian and American uh, and Canadian uh, officials continue to talk was something called the Arctic Council. Uh, it's, it's slowly starting to weaken. Um, I also smile too, because when, when you had talked about pressure on uh, the administration to look at LNG, when we were, and, and going back to Alaska, just recently the U.S. government uh, basically resized part of what we think is sovereign American territory on the continental shelf in Alaska, in northern Alaska. So most geo geopolitical uh, analysts and people who think about things in a geostrategic perspective are going to pay more and more attention to the Arctic. Some people call it the high north. And it's not just uh, because of climate change, but because of the positional advantage that having a presence there will do on multiple dimensions, military, intelligence, trade, energy, going forward. Um, I, I, now, let, me give you, let me give you one more thing just to have some balance to my comments because they've been critical of um, the Biden administration uh, and some of these policies, which is the case for new energies. And I'll do it from the perspective of China and India. If you do not have sufficient oil and gas resource, 
you're not going to want to import it from whomever it is, uh, whether you deem them friendly or not. And the best thing about new energies, it's not that it's always the most economic. And we know some of it comes with intermittency and some is going to require subsidies and this stuff. But once it's up and running, it almost overwhelmingly is a domestic resource with a, a very low OPEX, and usually it's a high CAPEX to get that low OPEX. And so I think these regions will be motivated to use as little oil as they can, except as little oil as they can to me still means a heck of a lot of oil, and it's going to be growing for 40 years. But it will grow at a, or a slower pace than it otherwise would because it's going to be huge motivation for these other 7 billion people on Earth, soon to be 9 billion people, to not just use oil and gas. And so I think that is the case for, and so that is the case for if we're going to export oil, if we're going to export natural gas, we should be exporting Teslas and other electric vehicles. And we should be at the forefront of all new technologies. So my critique to a future Republican administration or a past one, which is equivalent to my critique of Biden, would be simply drill baby drill is not the answer. Mm -hmm. um, frankly, I'm an equity analyst. No investor supports drill baby drill. They support capital discipline and give us dividends and stock buybacks and do an occasional low cost M&A type transaction if you have one. No one, no one in the investment community wants any return to drill baby drill. That is not the right answer either. Stop obstructing infrastructure as something Democrats do more. And in the case of Republicans, we do need to motivate new technology. It is in America's interest. It's in the interests of our allies. And it should be our companies from an American base, from our cities and states that are exporting these technologies. So I think there is a need for Republicans to also to develop a significantly better message on energy that is not simply the anti-democratic message, drill baby drill. It's as, as ridiculous of a slogan as is Democrats calling for a fast energy transition by, by 2050. On that topic, Arjun, I was wondering if, if you've had the opportunity to kind of look at uh, since the Biden administration has passed uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and all the different incentives for this very kind of entrepreneurial approach to new technologies, have, have you seen, uh, you know, in the last two years since all this was announced, have you seen this happening? Are there a lot of new novel ideas out there? Are there people thinking about EVs differently than the lithium-ion battery or, 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 or kind of where, where is some of the real novel thinking here that is in line with the strategic imperatives that you've outlined so far uh, in our discussion today? So I think the IRAs, it's a great talking point now because I think it does deserve some flushing out. So I think it is often overstated as, as a definitive catalyst towards transitioning to a net zero economy uh, but nor is it the root of all evil either, and that I don't believe it actually should be rescinded. I think it should be reformed and improved, but I would argue there are some good elements of it, and we should build upon those good good elements. I think the bad elements would be something like, it's not in the IRA, but having a de facto EV mandate to say by some round number year, we have to have 100% EVs. That's picking technology winners. That to me is not the job of government. It is not the job of legislation. I am a market's pro-capitalism kind of person. We do need some policy. And so I support the idea that some policy means having something along the lines of the IRA, which does promote domestic manufacturing and domestic sources. But let's make it technology agnostic. What I worry about with the IRA, and so to answer your direct question, it has led to a lot of investment and a lot of new capital formation. So if the motivation was to stimulate businesses to really get on board with trying to figure out what's going to come next, I think it's been a smashing success. It's early so far. There are just a lot of companies, a lot of ideas. What we don't know is what's going to work. And we can't pretend 
And we certainly can't base our economy and we cannot base our geopolitical security on the idea that something is definitively going to ramp up and be the answer. An example is a de facto EV mandate. I am a driver of an EV. I'm also a retired Goldman Sachs partner that drives about three miles a day. Um, and I charge at home. I love charging at home. Uh, but I also don't have to drive 400 miles and charge somewhere along the way. Uh, how, so I, I am supportive of the IRA being reformed. And I would like to see this idea of picking winners, um, the idea that hydrogen is definitively going to be the answer uh, or, or any of these other things. Let's get that out of there. Um, and let's just also have realistic timeframes by which things can move. This idea that we're going to phase out uh, natural gas uh, stoves, it's, it's ridiculous. There are 7 billion people on Earth using a fraction of the energy we do, us using gas stoves or not using gas stoves. All that does is politicize an issue that does not need to be politicized. Energy is too important. This should not be a partisan issue. I would like to see the debate on big government solutions, which is picking technology winners and having subsidies and these kind of things, versus a more markets-oriented, how do you motivate technology more agnostically and let the market go where, it's, where, it, where it may. That, to me, should be the debate, not IRA and mandates versus drill, baby, drill. That's, that's an ideological debate. Banning gas stoves is as dumb as it gets. Doesn't mean you might not want to have gas stoves. It's the idea that somehow banning it's going to impact climate uh, anywhere in the world is ridiculous when China is massively growing their, their coal supply. Even if they were massively growing their coal supply, let's have a technology that competes so that you're going to want a different kind of stove. And maybe you need, do need to motivate uh, labor and unions and businesses in some different way to think about different attributes of their products. That, that can make some sense. Maybe there should be some motivation to how do you build out EV infrastructure and so forth. There is a role for government in all this, but it is almost certainly not picking winners. And worse, thinking that we know the answer to how to energize our economy, and that it's just a matter of will. Oh, if we could just stop those evil lobbyists or these deniers, then we'd have this golden era of great energy and low carbon. That is utter rubbish. It is not based in any sort of truth. It is completely wrong. There's no part of it that's right. We do not know what is going to scale up without subsidy yet. We do not know that. Even solar, which everyone will cite as low cost, why does it still get a 30% ITC if it's so cheap? Right. And what about the intermittency? I think solar should be part of the mix. I, I don't want to be dependent on some big utility. No one likes their utility. I'd love to have solar and battery, but we also know it's expensive and we know there's intermittency. We know um, I have luxury to have a natural gas backup generator. So you, have to, you have to think about the total system and you have to ask questions about this stuff. One needs to have a question attitude about all these things. It's not about belief or disbelief. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Great points. And uh, when you talked about an EV mandate, I and, and I frequently have this conversation with some of my well-meaning, bright, well-meaning students who maybe don't always think through aspects of some of these transitions from different technologies. Um, maybe for, for some of our listeners, if they hadn't had a chance to think about this much, let's take, for example, an EV mandate of a place like the state of California. Even if you had an EV inventory, that would satisfy kind of the sales requirements. What are some of the commodity and infrastructure challenges of trying to pursue electrification to that level of scale and intensity that's that's being described for that state? Well, it's, it's such a it's a it's a great question. And so when you think about the ramp in copper, in basic critical minerals, lithium, there is 
enough resource in the earth. I don't, I don't think the world is short lithium. Um, and I think we will go through lithium exploration cycles. And we're already seeing that. We've seen the lithium price spike up. We've seen a lot of companies come in. We've seen it come back down. So this idea that could you someday get to where we have a large percentage of EVs on the market, it is possible. To say that we're going to be there by 2035 and to not think you're not going to be dependent on forced child labor in the Democratic Republic of Congo or the equivalence with the Uyghur population in China. And, and let me be clear here. Um, my iPhone, which I love, and we use all Apple products, does have some of those same things in it. So I, I, I never liked the, you know, the right-wing argument uh, that, hey, I'm, I'm in, I'm in, I support the Uyghurs. No, you don't. Don't, don't, don't make the counter EV argument on something where your other products use the same stuff. So I'm not in any way trying to be holier than thou on that. What I would say though is if we're going to call it green, if that's going to be a driver, then we should be allowing mining and those sorts of explorations in our own country. Why is it okay to only quote pollute other countries as an example? So if you can do 100% EV mandate in California, Make sure you've also then allowed copper mining and critical minerals mining and all these things to also happen in California to have a chance as one point. A, a second point would be simply um, the grid power demand in the U.S. has been basically flat for 20 years. I mean, it's actually been somewhat of a miracle that we've had economic growth and power demand has been flat. Now, as we ramp up artificial intelligence, as we sort of, quote, electrify everything, which is one of the climate calls to electrify everything. But then also only say you can only do it with solar and wind is is another ridiculous point. So if you want to say we have a nuclear Marshall plan in California, uh, and of course, what we're trying to do is not shut down our existing California nuclear plants, which I guess they finally freaked out enough that they're keeping, it's not Indian Point in California, Diablo Canyon, keeping that open. Um, where is the nuclear build out? How are you banning natural gas in California but you're going to mandate all EVs. How are you going to have stable power generation when you're going to have booming power demand growth? It all has to go together. So I would say it would be virtue signaling neutral or whatever the right term is to make sure you have the lithium and critical minerals mining in California, not in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, I think it would be consistent to ensure you have sufficient power generation to meet what will be an explosion in a positive sense, uh, upward of demand on your grid and not think that solar and wind are your only answers. It, it doesn't have to be natural gas. It should then be nuclear. Nuclear is absolutely fossil free energy uh, with no carbon emissions. Figure out a way to motivate that it does get built somewhere. Uh, so the idea that, you know, California's going to have a 2035, 100% EVs, there is zero chance of that. There's, there's not a 1% chance. There's not a half a percent chance. There is a 0% chance. What you might happen, though, is you might have... Uh, ice internal combustion engine vehicle sales shift to Arizona and Nevada. So maybe one needs to go long uh, traditional auto dealerships in those states if one believes this mandate is somehow going to stand the test of time. Oh, fascinating. Uh, if, if I can, and, and we've talked a lot about the United States, uh, and, and for, for rightly so for many reasons, if I can, uh, I want to maybe just shift a little bit to maybe some other geopolitical hotspots and how this is or maybe is not influencing energy. I think one of the things that surprised many people is that even with the intensity of the war in Gaza, the expansion of this conflict now in the Red Sea, that we haven't seen the huge type of energy uh, cost shocks that some anticipated. You know, there, there are some who write that, hey, this is going to be 1973 all over again. Eventually, if it gets bad, uh, there, there's these other, other problems and issues. 
why haven't we seen, I, th I think I saw today, maybe the, the price of barrels now near $80. It's gone up a little bit, but, but, but how come oil and, and gas isn't really to the levels of volatility that some people anticipated up to this point, part one, and then part two, sorry, long question. Yep. What would it take for things to kind of, to kind of get really out of hand? I mean, it's interesting. So I think there's almost no part of, let's just stick with the oil call that I think most oil experts, I'll put myself in the same bucket, have gotten right. So I think people were concerned, say in 2023, hey, what if the U.S. has a recession? Europe, China's a little weak. Um, we in fact had as strong of an oil demand growth year as we've ever had. And I mean, if at, if at, if at the beginning of 2023, someone said, here's the actual oil demand we're going to have, you would have said it's going to be a bull market and then never mind these geopolitical stuff. So people got the demand side wrong and it turned out to be more bullish, but they also got the supply side wrong. So shale, U.S. shale has generally been thought of as still growing, but mature. So the old days of growing a million barrels at A plus are going to be behind us. These companies are more capital disciplined. No one has an aggressive growth forecast yet. U.S. crude oil, U.S. shale oil, it did grow about by about a million barrels a day. And I'd say if these numbers don't mean anything to listeners, all I'd say is that is a much healthier growth rate. We had much more supply to match, basically, that positive demand surprise. So demand surprised positively, but so did supply. And that was true also in places like Russia, where people are well, hey, maybe there are going to be some sanctions, and the sanctions could bite a little bit, even though we know they're going to redirect to India they may not be able to redirect all of it because of availability of tankers and other logistical constraints. And in fact, Russian production is totally held up. And so, you know, Israel Hamas is a tragic situation, but it doesn't involve actual oil supply, at least not at this moment. I, I think you can see some either indirect involvement with Iran. Again, I think, Scott, you're probably more of an expert on this. But I, I will say oil markets are currently betting on the fact that no one seems to want an escalation. Whether the Houthis attacking the Red Sea ships represents an escalation, again, I'd ask you that question. What I'd say, though, is I feel like oil markets are currently betting that Iran actually doesn't want, they want to provoke but not escalate, and the U.S. wants to sort of be tough but also not escalate. And I mean, thanks goodness, no, no one's rooting for a world war here, and certainly no bullish, every bullish oil analyst should give up their call if it means we can have world peace. Um, and so we've not really seen the disruptions. Classically, supply disruptions are not good for the economy. So the best way to have a bullish oil price is that some of these supply areas disappoint, they get mature or what have you, and that demand surprises to the upside because of strong GDP growth. We've had the strong oil demand growth. We've not yet had the supply disruptions. And I think people are, the, excuse me, the traditional supply disappointing. And I think most oil analysts will say, if you have a geopolitical supply disruption, I'd be nervous that that's going to that's going to then tip us over to recession. So that that may all be too pessimistic of an outlook, but I think that explains why we haven't had more of a reaction so far. Well, and to your point about Iran, you know, it, it's interesting. Other than one tanker that was seized in the last day, we really haven't had any significant disruption coming out of the Persian Gulf through the Strait of Hormuz. Most most kind of geopolitical analysts and people who focused on the Middle East and and on Iranian potential provocative behavior, that's always the doomsday scenario, that that there will be disruptions of things coming in and out of the Gulf. We're seeing that disruption, but we're seeing it at a different geostrategic choke point and focused on a lot of shipment that's not really about energy, right? It's container ships, it's other things. So again, like you said, it's trying to figure out what each side's red lines are, pushing for influence. But as you said, also the Iranians and obviously the Saudis as well, knowing that 
that they want to keep that flow back, you know, going towards Asian markets. Um, and, and that being just absolutely key and essential. Scott, I think the concerns on this point that you're raising, they're frankly slow moving and long term in nature, and they're slow moving until they're fast moving. And what I mean by all that is um, Saudi Arabia has never in the history of the country produced more than 10 and a half million barrels a day. They've recently cut back production because of the bump in Iran and the bump in shale to 9 million barrels a day. But I would argue their demonstrated deliverable spare capacity is simply one and a half million barrels a day, not the three or more that people for some reason give them credit for, despite them never having achieved it. Um, UAE is probably the other country with some amount of deliverable spare capacity. And so maybe between them and some Kuwait, you're talking three or three and a half million barrels a day. That's really not a lot. Now, in a world where shale oil surprised to the upside last year at a million barrels a day, and the oil price is 70 or 80, which if companies were not so capital disciplined in the past would have led to a much higher rig count, um, that would tell, you know, an oil analyst that, hey, there probably is supply that could maybe not uh, day one of some big disruption, but within time meet up. And I think that's what I mean by near term. There may be some reasons to be relaxed about potential geopolitical risk, even as the tensions arise. Where, where I think it becomes more problem, problematic long term is everyone believes oil demand is going to peak within a decade. I would push back hard on that. And I think as oil demand continues to creep up and rise by a million barrels a day, shale will inevitably get more mature. And right now, no one's trying to figure out what's next. No one's doing exploration like they did in my early in my career. There's no long lead time projects in the oil sands or elsewhere for the most part happening. Guyana, Brazil, maybe a little bit of an exception there. But it's a much more subdued environment on the CapEx side. And so I don't think that comes to bite this year or next year. That's why my call has been labeled super volatility, super vol. I've not used the super cycle language that many other oil analysts have used. Um, but what I will say is I do think it is inevitable uh, that we do get to a much tighter market. And it is in that environment where if in that future year, and I don't know if that's three years from now or eight years from now, if Saudi or some other country has a big disruption in Iran, then, then you could see more of that 1973 type environment. So there are a lot of assumptions of what I just said. So hopefully your listeners understand it is a perspective. And actually you said you had Michael Cowan recently. He's a terrific, uh, person providing perspectives on all this stuff too. There's a lot of different views out there. Yeah. I, I, I was glad you, you mentioned I, my follow-up question was going to be on this idea of peak oil. Uh, I believe the last time OPEC met, it was the same time that the international, uh, energy associate, uh, agency, Said, hey, we're we're at peak oil, and the and the energy industry just kind of basically has to live with that. Obviously, OPEC pushed back on on this language. Can, just just for our listeners, just real quick, what 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 is this idea of peak oil, and, and why does it get why does it get different different stakeholders anywhere on the continuum of, of energy policy kind of so excitable when this when it's brought up as a term, and whether or not we are approaching this peak. Well, the term peak oil itself, we should be clear on. Right now, people are talking about peak oil demand, the idea that oil demand will peak in some near-term year. Uh, it wasn't. It was only 15 years ago where people were talking about peak oil supply, and that was going to cause, a, in that case, a bullish environment. We kind of tend to toggle every 10 or 15 years back and forth between whether it's going to be peak oil demand or peak oil supply. And so in my 30-year career, I have never found myself on the same side as sort of supporting OPEC. I, I am American by by birth and by background and perspective and opinion. So people can, people should know I have those biases that, that, that as an American I've, I've grown up with. Uh, so inherently, um, 
but but OPEC's done a good job. They've done a good job on the research here. They're the only ones out there defending, frankly, the developing world. Like, you know, so my simple math is you have 100 million barrels of the oil market, 1 billion of us use 40% of that or 13 barrels per person. The other 7 billion people use 60 million barrels a day, two-thirds, of, you know, 60% of the market. It's only three barrels per person. And within that, India's at one barrel per person. Africa's at one barrel per person. We in the, in the United States, we're 20 barrels per person. Uh, Canada's 20. South Korea's 20. Europe's 10. Japan's somewhere in between. But the rich world is using 10 or more barrels per person. And the rest of the world is using like three and in many places, one. Uh, there is such untapped and unmet oil demand growth potential. If everyone was similarly rich, and we could say this is never going to happen, but your total addressable market, it's actually 250 million barrels a day. Now, I don't think we're going to have that kind of market because if you're China and you're India, the implied oil imports is nothing you're going to want to deal with, and you may not even be able to get that much anyway. So you're going to try and do electric vehicles. You're going to try and do uh, you know, LNG trucks, whatever, and whatever some future technology is that comes around, you are not going to get. And we'll have some companies, excuse me, countries that stay poor, unfortunately. We'll have some countries with bad governments like Venezuela where the people stay poor, unfortunately. Yeah. But this idea that we're going to peak in 2028, it is ridiculous. It is pure advocacy. And I don't even understand it because it's so blatantly ridiculous. Um, there, there is no math that's going to get you. Now, you can say we're going to have recession. If you want to say we're going to have recession and flatline for a bit or even have declines, I agree with that. There's no, we had a Great Depression throughout the 20s and 30s or the 30s, excuse me, uh, 30s and early 40s. You could, could certainly have that kind of environment. I'm not saying it's always going to be golden. And no one should equate a bullish oil demand forecast as automatically meaning a bullish oil price forecast. Since 1870 then to 2023, we've only had rising oil demand, and we know we've had plenty of cycles along the way. But this idea that the IEA and others are putting out there, that peak demand is a certainty by 2028, is pure fantasy. It is not based on any reality. It is ridiculous, and it is leading to geopolitical insecurity, because it's motivating less capex, especially in the places where you can put pressure on companies, U.S., Canada, and Europe. Uh, and it's leading to some really bad decisions that are going to hurt everyone. It will always hurt the poor the most and then the middle class. The rich will always be most insulated. But it will hurt everyone if people really believe what the IA is saying and oh, act upon it. No, oh, that's great, Arjun. Well, you, know, you were talking about 2028. I, we've got a few minutes left. I, I wanted to, 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 to maybe ask about the near-term future. Um, for, for, our, for our listeners, could you just spend a little bit of time talking to us about uh, some of the big themes for 2024 that, uh, that you and your colleagues at Veriton have, have kind of highlighted as we, I know we're a few days into the new year, but yeah. as we kind of get into 2024, what are kind of the, the major insights um, or, or core themes that uh, you'd like to share with the audience? You know, so I, I do approach the world as an equity analyst, and at Veriton, our core business model is to help um, our company clients, if you will, we call them partner companies, there's about 25 of them, help them think through what is the energy outlook, what are the kind of things you should be doing, should you stick with your traditional business, should you be trying new technologies, how do you think about profitability and dividends and what will investors like and not like and all those kind of things. So that is the lens by which I view the world and within that is some policy suggestions and some macro perspectives as well. And I think the big lesson from 2023 is We've had another good year of traditional oil and gas profitability, and you saw a real implosion 
in the quote new energies or clean energies everyone else calls them names as business models started to get called into question hey interest rates are up i know you have growth but do you really have profits even with the subsidies never mind without the subsidies and so we kind of have a framework of you need to phase in profitable growth because for traditional energy they earned a lot of money last year but the stocks actually went nowhere in fact they pulled back a little bit and i, and I think this idea that Hey, they were beat up uh, after a really poor last decade. They needed to improve their profitability. They needed to fix their balance sheet. All of that they've now done. Now it's about articulating what is your positive message about the future? How are you helping meet the world's energy needs? And what is your unique competitive advantage in terms of low cost of supply in these kind of things, whether it's new or old technologies? I think for the new energy space, it's about what is your business model to scale profitably? Not just to have growth, anybody can put more widgets out there, but to actually in an unsubsidized way or a minimally subsidized way to generate profit. So the, the core theme is phasing in profitable growth. For both traditional energy, let's have a vision for the future. Let's not just be victims of, oh, these climate people are down on us, blah, blah, blah. Companies need to articulate why investors should own them and what they're doing to meet the world's substantial energy needs in the same way new, new energy's companies, to their credit, are much better at that. They say, here is our great new product that is going to solve the world's problems. And I, I actually respect them for that. We can agree or debate whether they're going to be successful or not. That's what an analyst or an investor does. But they are much better at articulating the future. And the traditional she's gotten so bit up. So it's a lot of what I talk about is around these themes. And it's ultimately grounded in how does the world meet its energy needs? Who's going to do it? And again, as an equity analyst, who's going to do it profitably? Who is an investor or a management team? What technologies or projects can I get behind? And that's how we're going to solve to ensure we have geopolitical security, we have available affordable energy, and that it's also going to be ultimately cleaner in terms of less emissions, less um, knocks and socks and all those bad things as well. It's not just CO2 uh, is, is what will, it will all lead to. So. Fantastic. Well, I can't think of a better uh, more series of commentary to to end our discussion on. Uh, Arjun Murthy, on behalf of the Geopolitics and Commodities podcast with Lycan, thank you so very much for your time, for your expertise, and your insights. Scott, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to be here. I've really enjoyed the questions and conversations, and thank you. <laughs>